1933 was an interesting year to be born in India. When Madhur Joffrey was born in British Delhi, her grandmother wrote the Sanskrit word Om on her tongue with honey. She witnessed the eventual independence of India in 1947. She's credited with introducing the film directors James Ivory and Ishmael Merchant to each other, and she later appeared in a number of their epic films. She's also been called the Julia Child of Indian Cooking. Madhur Joffrey joins us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about the colorful, flavorful world she grew up in and to add a little welcome spice to our lives today. Madhur, it's great to have you back on Travel with Rick Steves. That's wonderful to be here. Now, when we think of uh, the Raj, what does that mean when we think of India during the Raj? Well, that's the period when the British ruled India, and it has a romantic air about it because it sort of promoted that way. And a lot of films that have been done, television series that have been done, various uh, wonderful dramas of that period, they tend to make you think it was a very romantic period, but it wasn't because Indians were being ruled by somebody else and we were rebelling. We started rebellions around 1857 and have been rebelling ever since. And uh, we kept rebelling until we got our independence. Luckily for us, we had incredible leaders like Mahatma Gandhi and Nehru who believed in nonviolence. So we got our independence technically, nonviolently, as far as the government was concerned. So it was a great period for me to be born in. I was born during the Raj. That was my birth date is during the Raj. And then in 1947, we were independent, and I remember going to see the flag, the Indian flag being raised, everybody throwing their caps in the air, Nehru and Mountbatten jointly in whites riding a horse carriage together, one going out, one coming in. It was a grand old time. In whites, one leader going out, one leader coming in. That must have been incredible. Incredible. And the energy and enthusiasm. I think there must have been several million people in this one place where the flag was being raised. And it is as if, you know, pent up emotions that we were storing, not for ourselves only, but our ancestors, were suddenly there saying, good grief, we did it. We did it. (laughs) Now, what was the relationship between Britain and India after that? Was it angry or was it, okay, we learned, we had that chapter, we're going to work together now in a more respectful way? It's, it's interesting. I think when the British gave us independence, they did two or three rather rotten things at the same time. They partitioned India, as mm-hmm. you know. So now we have Pakistan, and then eventually we had Pakistan and Bangladesh. And the line was cut by some, I don't know who drew the line, but it just went through villages and, you know, every other little place without really any thought. We all love the English, but they draw lines in ways that cause problems 100 years later. Absolutely. It's amazing how how coarsely they draw lines in some office in London. Yeah, right. I mean, even today, when you think of the trouble in Syria or the trouble in Iraq, it goes back to those darn English lines. Exactly. So we suffered greatly, and we lost a million people as people rushed from one border to the other, you know. Huge population swaps, because this was basically, okay, we need a place for Muslims and we need a place for Hindus, right? right? So Pakistan, Muslim... India Hindu, but it's more complicated. It's much more complicated. Today in India, there's major um, Muslim states. Exactly. We have more Muslims than any other country other than Indonesia. In India? Yes. I didn't know that. 
you know, so you got challenges. You got, got challenges, challenges with we British imperialism. You got challenges with Muslims and Hindus. And as you Hindus. said when you started talking, is that when you come to India, you're not coming to a tidy place. <laughs> you're coming to a very untidy place. And that is both the charm, the marvel, think and everything that. else about India. And when you think about India today and when you were a child, I think of it as a landmass as, as big as Europe and as diverse as Europe with more people than Europe. Today, it's a, a gangly, fragile democracy, I think you could say, with a huge sea of poor people, a massive middle class. I mean, a middle class of more than 100 million people. More than the people that there are in this country is our middle class. So in India, 400 could, million people so are middle class. You could say there's half a billion desperately poor people, but there's more middle class people in India than in the United States of America. Wow. <laughs> That's, and you're surrounded by all sorts of complicated neighbors. Absolutely, who wish us not so well. Uh, so it's, it's a hard country, but at the same time, it has such history. It has such yeah, and it, such and, beauty. And I, uh, I love the, the scene in your book. You're, you're talking about, during your childhood, climbing a mango tree in your grandfather's orchard and exploring the world of hot and sour. Take us there. I mean, because this is the wonderful side of history, an intimate side of history. Here's a person who has done all sorts of wonderful and interesting things, going back to a humble childhood, climbing a mango tree and learning about the wonders of life, surrounded by all this tumult. Exactly. So every child in India grows up surrounded by all kinds of tumult. So we grew up in an orchard. And strangely enough, the orchard was something that came through the British as a reward <laughs> from the British <laughs> for having done something that helped the British anyway. So we, my grandfather had this property where he built his house. And as little kids, you know, you eat sweet things. Yeah. People say, what do Indians eat? Well, you start off by sweet things. Do you start out with spicy things? No, we can't eat spicy things when we're little kids. But we aspire to spicy things because we see grown-ups eating them. It's like wearing stockings and a girl says, oh, one day I'll wear stockings. You One day I'll eat spicy food. That's what you're dreaming about. So we had all these lovely mango trees in our, in our orchard. And the thing was to get them when they were raw. And when they're raw, they're sour. Yeah. They're wonderfully sour. So we would, all my cousins and I, we would all climb these mango trees and we'd be on the branches like little birds <laughs> with our pen knives. And then the eldest would take down a big mango, a green mango, and he would peel it and give us little slices. And we all carried up with our salt, pepper. It had a little roasted cumin in it, a little chili powder. And then we would dip the sour mango in that crunchy mango and then eat it. It was so delicious. And it was really a sign of growing up. So you I've graduated. With, with, I'm up. And your up. older cousins were higher on the tree yes, doing we the, the lead down. work. And they were sending you the beautiful mangoes and you were a- adventuring, really. Exactly. Oh. Talk about the cuisine of, of a child in Delhi. You were growing up in Delhi, yeah. is that right? Yeah. Like, you talked about the, the snack of wealth. What yes. is the snack of wealth? Oh, that was something. It's, it's still made today, but it's, it's uh, you don't know what it is. It's just called a snack of wealth, Dolat Kichat. That was the name for it. And this woman who used to bring it on her head, she had a huge tray, brass tray on her head, in which she carried these cups and the froth was coming right up to the top. If you imagine a cappuccino, it looked like a cappuccino, but cold. And you only got it in the winter. And I would say, how do you make it? She says, oh, my child, what can I tell you? 
It is made with the dew that comes from heaven. You know, stories like this, and it is, it does require dew from heaven. But it was an amazing snack made with milk that you then froth up. And it has to have a cold winter for it to get really cold outside. And then it has pistachios in it, and it has little almonds in it, and it has sugar in it. And it's all cold and frothed up. And you eat it with a, like a piece of bamboo that's cut into a kind of spoon. And you eat it with that. And the taste and the texture is like heavenly froth. Whoa. Absolutely gorgeous. Now, that was in the days of the Raj. That was back in, yeah. the, in the 40s or something. Yes. Today, do little children in India have the same delights, or is their food just convenience store munchies? Well, this lady certainly doesn't come around anymore. Right. I was told by an, uh, a cousin, she said, I can make it in my blender now, she said. Oh, it's not the same. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> exactly. I said, no, you're not having the snack of wealth. You are having some blenderized. <laughs> Benderized snack of wealth. <laughs> you know, I love in your book how you talked about at school, as a schoolgirl, you would share a lunch table with Hindus, Muslims, vegetarians, and carnivores. And then you would describe the intrigue of basically marveling at the lunches of your friends who came from different cultural backgrounds. Well, this is the thing in India, that here, if you go to school, all the kids probably know exactly the same food. Yeah. They know chicken nuggets. They know a sandwich. They know a ham sandwich. They know a peanut jelly sandwich. There's no difference between what the kids eat. But in India, every home cooks such different food that what the kids bring in is remarkably different from what you're bringing in. So I, as a Hindu girl, would bring in certain types of things. A girl from South India would bring other things. A Muslim girl would bring probably some meat or, or the other and lovely breads of a certain sort. A Jain girl would bring in vegetarian food like potatoes. Every girl brought in something different. So you were dying to try somebody else's because you were sick of your own. So if, <laughs> if you had a curiosity, you would look forward to lunch pail cuisine. Absolutely. In midday, you'd take a break, you'd That's sit down, right. you'd travel around glorious, diverse India right. by peeking into the lunch pails of the other girls. And I still do that today. If you go <laughs> to India today, I was just, I'm writing another vegetarian book. So I was going around South India and everywhere I went, I went to this place where chilies were drying. And there was a woman sorting the chilies. I said, what are you going to eat today for lunch? Open your lunchbox. Let me look inside. <laughs> I still want to do that because it reveals a whole cuisine, a way of thinking of a particular group of people. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're peeking into the lunch pails of people who live far away, as we do every week on Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, we're speaking with Madhur Jaffrey. Her book is Climbing the Mango Tree, a memoir of her childhood in India. She's also written At Home with Madhur Jaffrey. Her website is madhur-jaffrey.com, M-A-D-H-U-R-J-A-F-F-R-E-Y.com. In your book, you talk about how the Punjabis are like Texans. They are. Everything has to be bigger. Now, who, first of all, who are the Punjabis? Because that's a beautiful place to travel. All right. So if you are aware of the map of India, as it is now, because now Pakistan has been split, Punjab used to be in the northwest. These of are the what, Sikhs, where the Sikhs live? The Sikhs also live there, because uh -huh. they're also Punjabis. Right. The Punjabis who are not Sikhs and Punjabis who are Sikhs. Okay. And they all live in Punjab. Punjab was a huge, big state, a wheat-growing state mm. of India. People think Indians eat rice, mm. but we eat a lot of wheat, and this was a wheat-growing state. 
Unfortunately, when the British partitioned us, Punjab got partitioned. So half of Punjab is in Pakistan, hmm. and we have the other half of Punjab. But their food is glorious. It's a rich, hearty, almost peasanty. It's like Italian food in the sense that it's the best of it is peasanty. It's Salt not of the earth, rustic food. Rustic hmm. of the earth, like hmm. a good pasta or a, you know, it is very sim. I think very similar to Italian food. And Punjabis are proud. They do things they, bigger and better. They do, and they're bigger <laughs> people, taller people, okay. big turbans yeah. if they're Sikhs, you know. Yeah. And they were a martial group. They rode horses. And now when the partition happened and a lot of them came to Delhi, no more horses to ride. So what do they ride? They took over the cab service. And, and we, they ride cabs. And we have Sikh cabbies in the United States. Yes, and if we you, have them in if, India, if, too. if you meet an Indian cabbie in the United States, he's probably a Sikh. <laughs> that goes back to their heritage as Well, they're, they're, they're horsemen. riders of and the guards, terrain. And they're traditionally the guards in the palace. Exactly, exactly. All right. In your book, you talked about discovering... K rations one Christmas. And when I read about that, it just, I thought, K rations, what a humble thing, you know, military prepacked meals, right? But you found that and it opened you up to wonders well, well you beyond see, India. To you, it's just K rations. And what happened was that they were suddenly, the war ended in 40, what? The, oh, World, World War, war II. II. Was, uh, I see, it was 1945. So we had a yeah, lot of 45. K rations so floating around. 45, the war ended. Okay. And suddenly, the war had also been in our part of the world. Japan had attacked, yeah. and so the war was everywhere. And these K rations have the a K long life. The K rations have a lo- <laughs> whatever, endless life, it seems. <laughs> so there was suddenly that and parachute silk were released. Parachute silk and K-rations. They were in all the markets. Everybody and was wearing... army blankets. I, I grew army up blankets. army blankets. Exactly. Yeah. So everybody was in India was wearing dresses made out of parachute silk because ah. suddenly it was everywhere and cheap. Parachute and silk And then chic. there were the K-rations wrapped in this brown So what's in a K- what did you remember was in a K-ration? So then we would get them for like one rupee, a whole package. And the joy of opening it up like gorgeous treasure... And then what is inside? So the cigarettes you gave to your older cousins. Then there were olives. Oh, my goodness. I'd never eaten an olive before until I ate that. There was fruit cocktail. Can you imagine? And <laughs> you we only got like fresh fruit. Del- What's fresh fruit? You can get fresh fruit anywhere. Yeah. Oh, fresh fruit. We had fresh that, mangoes, yeah. fresh bananas. Uh, fruit cocktail. All the fruit put together in a little can with a cherry, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was fascinating for us. And spam, my goodness. <laughs> my cousins and I used to cut the spam up into little pieces. We liked it so much, so it would last longer. Because these we'd <laughs> oh, never... I've never heard anybody say, spam, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> but we were totally charmed. These were the exotic things for us. And that's just a, a wonderful thing about this planet, isn't it? I mean, spam and fruit cocktail can be a delight. And uh, a mango dipped in uh, hot and sour uh, spices can be a delight. Yes, exactly. I always say India is my favorite country on this planet because it really mixes up all of my cultural furniture. It rearranges <laughs> yeah. in ways I didn't know was possible, mm-hmm. and it humbles my ethnocentricity. I grew up thinking I knew what, what pain was, what time was, what love was, what music was. And they go to India, and there's a billion people who see it differently. Yeah. And for me, that's one of the celebrations of travel and it's a beautiful opportunity. You've done a beautiful job of, of uh, packaging these observations because you had the opportunity to grow up in India and then live in... In, in Britain in and Britain, here, in, in America. In the United yeah. States. 
Now, you said during your childhood, it, it didn't occur to you that families could come in sizes of less than 30 people. <laughs> big big I, families were the norm. Yeah, then. because you always lived with your grandfather. Many generations, Yeah, so three generations were nearly always together. Okay. So it wasn't that one woman would have 30 children. No, no, it no. It was that no, no, you'd no, have no, everybody, no. the extended family together. Yes, and a whole I, there was comfort in that. There was also things that were not so nice about a big joint family like that. But I think there's great solace for children. There's mm-hmm. a great sense of belonging for children. But this was almost economic necessity, I think. To... It wasn't in our case. It wasn't, it wasn't okay, because your case. family was a well-off family. Yeah, then. it wasn't at all. It was just my grandfather felt it was the right thing, mm-hmm. that we should all be together. Hmm. And he didn't let us leave. My father wanted very much to have his own household. But my grandfather said, no, and in those days, you listen to your father. This thing about respect for elders was still there in India, very much so. Yeah. You know, it's so important when we do travel in India to travel in a way where we actually get away from our comfort zone and connect with the real people. I remember when I was in India, Madhur, you could take a tour of Bombay or whatever, and there'd be two tours, one for tourists and one for Indian travelers, because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of Indian travelers. Of course. And they would have the same route. But one would be in a fancier bus and go to restaurants in a hotel, mm-hmm. and the other one would be in a simpler bus, and they would go to very characteristic restaurants. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. one you'd eat with spoons and forks, and the other you'd eat with your fingers. Yes. yes. And I would save about 75% by taking the local tour, Yeah. and I think I would have triple the experience. Yeah. I'm sure you did. I'm it, sure you it's did. It's a shame if somebody goes to India and, and never eats with their fingers. Well, I, <laughs> I have to tell you, I was in Korea once and writing about Korean food, and there was this lady who cooked wonderful food for me. She was a cooking teacher, among other things. A very aristocratic kind of lady. And she says, I don't understand how you can eat with your fingers. Because they eat with these knitting needle-type metal chopsticks in metal Korea. Metal chopsticks, okay. So I said, I, I was so incensed, but I, she was my hostess, and I didn't want to say anything that was not correct. So I said, Madam... How would you feel about making love with metal chopsticks? Bingo. What did she say? She was just (laughs) quiet for a second. (laughs) So that's my experience. In in India, it's not a matter of elegance or class or upbringing. It is just correct in certain cases to eat with your fingers. It is. And you wash your hands before, you wash your hands after. James Beard, whom I worked with a lot, he used to say that hands are the best implement. Yeah. And he used to actually whisk with his with his hand. And he used to lift things with his hands, opening up his fingers, lift, you know, foods up with his yes. hands. And he developed a pair of, uh, I guess you call them spoons, for lifting salad up. Right. Which were like two hands oh. made of wood. So he had and I, I wonder why nobody took that over from him. I still have his hands, the two wooden hands that he really? he designed. But they're absolutely the best thing for picking up salad. I vividly remember going into fancy restaurants in India where I don't think there was a spoon and fork in the place. And there was like, I I seem to remember a ceremonial sink in the middle of the room where where elegant people would wash their hands. Right. And it just felt right to eat with the fingers God gave you for eating. Because you can manipulate so much better. You don't have peas slipping off. But there's some tricks. For a long time, I was trying to shuffle it in, not realizing (laughs) I had to use gravity and I'd use my thumb as like an ice cream spoon flicker. to push it off. And then there's an art of eating soup with your fingers also. Yeah, there is. Can I can't do that, that so well. I, that was, I, I saw that. <laughs> That's, and more I thought, <laughs> That's more South India. That's more South India. That was, um, In the North, we, we don't do that. And we really do eat with the, only the end digits of our fingers. Okay. And we usually use bread. 
to pick up the food. Okay, in so the north. farther south, you will have you will have more, more of, that. of that. Yeah, more wet food. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Madhur Jaffrey. Her book is Climbing the Mango Trees, and you can learn more about her work at madhur-jaffrey.com. M-A-D-H-U-R-J-A-F-F-R-E-Y.com. Madhur, you're a cook and an actress, yet you wrote a memoir. What do you hope that people will take away from reading Climbing the Mango Trees? I don't know why I wrote the memoir, and I don't know what people will take away from it. I wrote it. I didn't want to write it. Uh, my editor absolutely insisted that I write it. I knew there were going to be difficulties in writing it because the minute you bear, you can't just bear yourself. That would be fine. But you have to bear a few other people with you. Mm-hmm. And that's not always very pleasing to the other people whose lives you're sharing. And that was very hard. So I don't know what I expect people to get from it. I hope they learn a little bit about India of a certain mm-hmm. period, mm-hmm. Uh, which not much has been written about this period post and pre-independence. right. And uh, I hope I will show them a period that they've never really intimately known before from one person's point of view. And there's an intimacy when you get beyond the headlines and you just climb the mango tree and, and you recall uh, the, the little joys of life. Exactly. You know, when I want to recall my own childhood, the comfort food I, I seek out would be, I, I think back, what did my mother make for me? And it was like... A, beef stew and cornbread and apple cobbler. Mm-hmm. What's the one dish that your mother used to make for you that brings you right back to your childhood in Delhi? I think it's what we call dal, which is beans, split peas and beans, made with, so we would have moong dal, which is mung beans without mm-hmm. their skin, and split, and they would be cooked very simply, and we would have them with basmati rice. And those two smells, the smell of basmati rice cooking in the kitchen mm. and that plain dal, mm with one little vegetable, is to me heaven still. I can live on that. Even for a tourist, that's comfort food. It is I remember comfort when food. I was, it's like rice and beans doll. in Latin America. It was just bring on the doll. Yeah, bring on the doll. Madhur Jaffrey, your editor was very smart. to recognize <laughs> that you had a beautiful book hiding inside of you. That was even more than a cookbook. It was, oh, thank uh, you. It was a cultural cookbook. And uh, best wishes. Uh, you've got me uh, fantasizing about climbing the mango trees in corners far, far away. Thank you. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Along those same lines, Europe 101, History and Art for the Traveler, is a must-read for anyone who appreciates Europe's rich history and great art. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.